All right. Welcome to Chief Chats with Kevin Hobby and Todd Hagopian. I'm Kevin Hobby. And I'm Todd Hagopian. And we have one of our favorite guests back. And I believe she is the first one to come back and visit us a second time, Hannah Cox. Hannah, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Hannah Cox. I am a brand ambassador for the Foundation of Economic Education. I'm also a contributor to the Washington Examiner and Newsmax and the host of the podcast Based. Awesome. Well, Hannah, um, I know most of the folks um, got to listen to you last time around, but for the people who didn't, let's just do kind of an abbreviated um, background, what you've done inside the Liberty Movement, and then we'll pop into our two topics of the day, which are going to be the PRO Act and criminal justice uh, with the Chauvin um, discussion of the week. Cool. I think the last time I was here, we were talking death penalty, I assume. Is that right? Uh, I, I think the last time that we were here, we went over your history and how you got involved with the um, okay. conserv conservatives concerned about the death penalty. So we did touch on it. Got it. Yeah. So I have, you know, sort of a spastic background. I always have people ask how I got to do my line of work. And, and I tell them like, it was, I just think it was a God thing. It's, it's so sort of disjointed, but also really led one thing into the next. So I, started off in the music industry in Nashville. And that was really all I'd ever wanted to do my whole life and got there, got to do some very cool things, but ultimately just found that I really was very unhappy in that line of work and um, had graduated college, was working for Entertainment One and was just trying to figure out how to get out of that <laughs> and build another career path, you know, and it was kind of hard and daunting. And um, I was looking at maybe going back to school for law or for psychology. I was interested in, in both of those fields. And I ended up finding a side position that I could do while I was still working full time in music uh, with a Second Amendment group in Tennessee, which is where I was living. And I thought, well, I love the Second Amendment and, you know, I could do this role and I could work alongside this attorney and see if I want to go to law school. And so that was how I sort of stumbled into politics. I ended up falling in love with it. I really liked working with people and with policy and helping people understand how policy impacted them. Um, and so for about two and a half years, I just kept working on the side. I did some work for the National Alliance on Mental Illness as a pro bono lobbyist. I started writing a good bit. I formed a, a coalition and, and online blog for millennials to become more active in politics and did some volunteering on some campaigns. Like I just kind of tried my hand at everything to see, you know, what I was good at, what I liked and to keep trying to build my way into another career path. Um, finally, in 2016, I went to work full time for the Beacon Center of Tennessee, which is a free market think tank. And I was their director of outreach for two and a half years. So I was working, I was sort of the liaison between the policies and the litigation that we were pursuing and the people of Tennessee. And so I was, you know, building coalitions, I was writing, I was creating videos and new media to help people understand what the impacts of these policies and litigation would be. I was vetting many of the cases that were being brought to us and helping to prepare our plaintiffs to pursue pro bono litigation against the government, which was really fun. Uh, love suing the government. So that was um, a good chapter. And while I was working for the Beacon Center full time, I also was uh, running a coalition on the side called TASME in Tennessee that did a lot of work around criminal justice reform and mental health care, of which there's a good bit of overlap. Uh, and it was through that work that I first really encountered the death penalty. Um, and I had I had formerly been supportive of the death penalty until I, I started, you know, getting a more up close picture of how it operated and was just really 
shocked and upset and, and angry about what I found. And so I started advocating against it. Um, and that led to my taking over conservatives concerned about the death penalty, where I spent nearly the past three years as, as their national manager um, and worked to overturn the death penalty, but worked to get Republicans and libertarians to um, to educate them about the issues, to build coalitions with them, and then ultimately to move those bills through state legislatures. We were able to overturn three new states during my time, so that was an exciting um, set of progress that we made, and I think they will continue to, to um, see more success in the near future. So uh, I've had a, a sort of short window in politics, but I've done a lot during that time and, and just recently moved over full time to the Foundation for Economic Education, where I was a fellow for the past six, seven months. Um, and I'm really excited to be in this new role. Fee was so important for me when I was first, you know, getting my uh, feet wet in, in politics and still working in the music industry, I would spend my days just reading everything I could and really trying to solidify my own views and principles. And Fee was extremely instrumental in that and helping me gain a better understanding of economics and how to apply them. Um, and so I'm, I'm thrilled to be there full time now and hopefully get to offer that to other people and reach, you know, the upcoming generation with these same ideals. Sure. Talk a little bit about Fee and what they do. Yeah, so Fee is actually the country's oldest libertarian think tank. Um, they have a really storied, fascinating history. If you're not familiar, you should definitely go to fee.org and, and check out everything that they do. They were founded by a man named Leonard E. Reed, which many people might know from the short essay, I Pencil. Um, and, you know, the people who have, have come through their halls over the years, it's, it's the who's who of, of economics in my book, you know, Henry Hazlitt and, and F.A. Hayek and uh, Mises. And so there's just so many people that have been instrumental in, in fees history. Um, but they as a whole have worked throughout the decades to educate people about free market economics, but also to educate people about the ethical values and the humane principles that are needed in a society in order to uphold such a system. And so I think that's what really sets them apart. You know, it's a holistic philosophical worldview that they are spreading. Um, and it, to me, it, it perfectly falls in sync with my worldview. Um, you know, I'm a Christian, so that informs my ethics and how I believe we should treat people and act in society. But I think whether you're a Christian or of any other sort of religion, people have, you know, these ethical principles that we can sort of agree upon that we need to, um, to follow and, and to act upon in order for us to maintain a, a system of liberty and freedom that really is respectful of all people and their rights. So um, Fee takes that in all kinds of directions. You know, we have a, a very um, high traffic website. So we're constantly producing articles. We just launched a new program called the Hazlitt Project where we're actually going to be hiring aspiring apprentices who want to be journalists, teaching them the tools of the trade and helping them be better influencers for liberty out in the world. Um, we have all kinds of new media. There's, you know, there's podcasts, there's online shows. Our YouTube is just a treasure trove of information and really cool content that people can interact with and watch. Um, we are about to launch a new podcast with myself and Brad Palumbo, who's another journalist with Fee, and so we're really excited about that. Um, and then we also have what we call Fee in the Classroom. So we have a lot of educational seminars that we're offering to younger people, trying to encounter them, ensure that they have a chance to interact with these principles. During normal times, we have a lot of events. Right now, some of that has moved online, of course, um, but we're very active in the communities. And, and so Fee is just um, sort of all over the place um, and in really trying to saturate the market 
um, and with these ideas, but with these ideas in a format that is engaging and fun and interesting and that, um, you know, you never sit there and read fee content and feel like you're reading economics. You, right. you really feel like you're, you know, you're learning about how to apply economics in the real world and getting real time examples of economic principles at play. Yeah, well, I mean, if, if people have never seen your show or Brad's show, they don't quite understand how cool a podcast is going to be with the two of you on it. So, Thank you. Yeah, I think that is yeah. going to be a lot of fun to watch. <laughs> so, Thanks so much. Yeah, so um, no, thank you. Um, all right, well, that kind of leads us in uh, when you're talking economics and you're talking ethics. Um, there will be people that say that the uh, PRO Act um, talks about both of those things. I think their ethics will be a little different than yours probably, um, but let's talk through what the PRO Act is, why it's important that we're talking about it now, um, and what the timeline on this discussion is going to be. Yeah, so the PRO Act is a piece of legislation that has really gotten a lot of attention from me recently, and I think from several others as well. You know, it's, it's an act that personally, personally would impact me first and foremost, um, but it especially would have impacted me six, seven, eight years ago when I was trying to move into politics. Um, essentially what the PRO Act does, it's, it's a piece of union pushed legislation heavily supported by the Democrats. It actually already passed the House where Democrats have control and um, now they're hoping to pass it in the Senate. I don't think they would be able to do that unless they got rid of the filibuster, which would be bonkers, but I don't put it past them. Um, so that remains to be seen. But basically what the PRO Act would do is um, first and foremost, it would overturn and prohibit right to work laws in, in the country. And so there's 27 states, I think, that have passed right to work laws um, ever since the federal government essentially made it possible for them to do so in the late 1940s. Um, and then it also would restrict independent contracting and, and freelancing. Um, this is something that unions already tried to do recently, just last year in California, uh, with what was called Assembly Bill 5 that passed in California. It created tremendous upheaval. A lot of people lost their jobs, including like 200 freelance journalists for Vox um, almost instantly. And it was it was a huge catastrophe. Um, many people don't know the way California system works. Their General Assembly can pass bills, but a lot of bills then have to be voted upon by the general public, or there can be um, propositions brought to challenge those laws. And so it, their system's quite different than many other states based on their state constitution. But um, Uber and Lyft funded a pushback on this bill that was known as Prop 22. Basically, um, it would exempt some uh, independent contractors and freelancers from this heavy-handed act that California's legislature had passed. And that proposition passed overwhelmingly last fall in November because Californians were like, what did you just do to us? So they, they voted to carve out all these exemptions. So things like Uber um, Eats or Uber drivers and those kinds of, of independent contractors aren't under the weight of that law, but it still does impact many other people. Um, they couldn't even get, you know, crazy commie California to go along with this, with this kind of action. And now this is essentially what they're pushing at the federal level with the PRO Act, trying to push it on the rest of the country. Um, and I, you know, and the other thing that it does is it would force employers to hand over private information on their employees who were not unionized. Uh, we know that unions have a significant history of abuse and harassment of people who are not in unions. So it's pretty easy to see what they would want to do with that information. But this act is something that has really made me mad because, you know, as I just detailed, I did a lot of work on the side uh, for many years in order to be able to move out of music and into politics. And had I not had that opportunity, you know, the choices before me would have been being stuck in the music industry in a career where I wasn't happy 
uh, taking on even more significant student debt to go back to school and get another degree that would have been time away from the workforce, uh, more student debt, and then who knows what kind of job I would have gotten coming out. You know, we often know that people getting a degree doesn't even necessarily equal getting a job in that field or a good paying job in that field. It would have set my trajectory back so significantly to have had to go through either of those two routes, you know, and I just think when I think about the American dream, when I think about, you know, the, the basic essential rights that we are guaranteed and, and um, you know, the ability to pursue that American dream, the right to work is paramount to, to this idea, the ability to use your own ingenuity and your own work ethic um, to create something for yourself and to pursue the career pathways and, and situations and contracts and negotiations that will be best for you. There is no one size fits all approach, um, especially as our economy has grown and changed. You know, very few people are stuck in this nine to five, five work day a week kind of situation that where unions, um, you know, used to be the most prolific and, and profitable. Now we see people being able to move into the gig economy. We have something like 50 million Americans who are participating in that, some of them full-time, some of them on the side. But they do that because they want more freedom. They want to be able to have more customizable hours. They want more flexibility. They want to be able to determine how much money they're going to make. You know, if you want to make more money, you take on more clients. If you need to have a little bit less money or you need more freedom, you take on less clients. This is something that's great for Americans, for families, for workers, for women. A large number of women are in the independent contracting space. Um, and essentially, the PRO Act wants to take that ability away from them and push them all back into these really antiquated old school kinds of relationships with employers that uh, where unions can get their hands on them and then basically co-opt them into having to pay the union. It just makes me livid. Um, I'm somebody who still continues to freelance a good bit because I love to make money. <laughs> I love to meet new people and I love to gain skills. And, uh, you know, I'm a single female and I like to be able to afford better things for myself and to invest and to pay off debt and to buy a houses. You know, like these are things that are so important and the autonomy to pursue them is so important. And this is a piece of legislation that would essentially take that away um, take that opportunity away. It would reduce how much money, you know, I could earn out in the world. And, and I'm somebody who would, you know, not be as impacted by many others who do this full time, who might have their entire livelihoods taken away. So it's just a terrible, terrible, terrible idea. It's disgusting to me that Democrats are backing it. It's horrendous to me that unions continue to try to um, get Americans under their thumb in this way. And it's something that I think we need to ensure everybody's well aware of. Yeah, so let's um, let's dial it back a little bit for people who aren't familiar with right to work, because as you said, it's only in about half of the states. Um, and I'm also not a huge fan of the way we name these bills, even when I support them, like right to work is, you know, it, it's a little bit, yeah, yeah, everyone wants the right to work, but no one really understands what it means. Talk a little bit about what right to work does and then how that's put in jeopardy with the PRO Act. Yeah, and to be fair, you know, we can criticize right to work from even a free market perspective. I think there's some fair critiques to make of it, but essentially it's important to understand the trajectory of uh, the labor movement in this country. And this is something that I actually cover in my upcoming podcast. It's coming out Monday. Um, but, you know, in the 1930s, we saw a lot of new policies that were passed um, that really rewrote the way organized labor could operate in this country. And one of those bills was passed in 1935, and it essentially gave the um, 
gave unions the ability to force people into joining them. And so they started doing things like if you were hired to work um, a new job, you had to sign up to be a, a member of a union within you know X amount of days, you had to pay dues. Um, even if you weren't a part of the union, you'd often have to pay dues. There was very little choice given to employees. Um, that got very abusive and coercive quite quickly. And, and there were a lot of other abuses that were happening around unions and their behavior. Um, and so in, I think, 1947, you know, a little over a decade later, Congress came back and passed a bill called the Taft-Hartley Act in 1947, I think. Um, and essentially, this law sort of pulled back a bit on the 1935 law. It put some more restrictions in place for unions. And it essentially said that people could not be forced to join a union or that states could pass laws um, to where people were not forced to join. So it left it up to the states. I think it was an appropriate way to handle this. Um, and since that time period, we have seen 27 states implement right to work laws. And so um, it's not a blanket law. It looks different in different states. But essentially what right to work does, it says that people can't be forced to join a union. People always have a choice to join a union. Even in right to work states, you have every ability to join a union if you want to. Um, but you can't be compelled to or forced to. Now, the criticism of right to work laws by some, um, well, you know, there's two camps. You have the Democrats and the, the unions that fund them that they don't like it because they lose out on profits. But um, but then you have, you know, free market critiques of right to work laws. And those would be along the lines of um, basically saying that this is a state law that interferes with contracts, um, private contracts. And I don't think that's an unfair characteristic. I think that um, it is problematic. And Essentially, what that means is if you have a private employer and they make a contract with a union um, and they say, OK, we're going to have all of our employees be in this union uh, and the state comes in and says, no, you can't say that, that that interferes with the private employer's ability to negotiate their own contracts. Um, on the left, you'd hear criticisms of right to work that would come from, um, you know, everybody benefits from the union's negotiating activities, which that's arguable, but um, but they would say that this creates freeloaders who get to basically ride and benefit from the negotiations without paying the dues. So there's some right. conflict around right to work laws, but I want to be clear that the conflict generated from the government getting involved in the market in the first place and from unions um, really trying to use the muscle of government to bully people into joining them. So you can look at other models of unions in places like in the Nordic countries that actually do operate in a more free market way where they, um, you know, you have groups of people coming together and, and lobbying essentially for better working conditions or pay and the unions actually do their job and go in and negotiate with the employer and get better deals for their workers, but they don't get government involved in the process. And that's just not how they've operated here. Yeah. And, uh, and the other um, liberal side of the argument typically is that this is using law to inherently weaken the unions by not having everybody in the union, you know what I mean? Then the union gets weaker with the employer. And obviously I don't subscribe to that, um, but that I remember specifically being in Michigan uh, when the right to law um, debate was happening, I think in early 2010s, I can't remember what year, uh, but Michigan was a was a hot state for it, obviously with the, with Detroit, you know, and the car makers and everything. It was a big deal. Um, and that's kind of what 
the Democrat fear tactic was, is, you know, once you sign this, the unions are going to die. There will be no more unions, you know, and everything will go back to 1918 and there will be 12 year olds working in the factories and blah, 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 you know. Um, obviously, none of that happened, and, and the unions are, yeah, unions are alive and well. They just have to work harder um, to get people to join, which is exactly what they should do. You know what I mean? They should have mm -hmm. to deliver more value. Uh, if it, just like any other product in the marketplace, they should have to deliver the value associated with the membership cost. You know, if they want to get members. Um, okay, so talk about um, again. I think you touched on it, but let's break it down. What does the PRO Act do to these 27 states that have right to work laws? Yeah, so again, it, it is a case by case situation, depending on how the law is written. But as a whole, it would either overturn the existing right to work laws or kneecap them, essentially. Um, and it would make it much harder, if not flat out impossible to, to pass right to work laws in other remaining states. Um, it also would restrict independent contracting. And so it would come in and classify um, very strictly what a um, contract worker could look like. And essentially it would try to make it to where people would predominantly have to be hired full-time to do work um, because they wanna force people into full-time relationships with their employers where they can be unionized. Um, so uh, again, there would be some you know, exceptions similar to what we saw in California, but this bill is modeled after the bill in California. And so it would look very similar, similarly, um, and that would be its ultimate goal. So like, for example, right now, you know, I get a good bit of contract work writing for other outlets. Um, they would classify that as something, uh, basically the way it, it works is if, if the work that you're doing is outside the parameters of the normal operations of the company um, and it's like a short time period kind of you know independent job that you're hired to do that could still be considered an independent contract but if you're doing work on an ongoing basis or if you're doing work that would fall under the general um, role of that kind of, of uh, organization then that would be banned so if i were to get paid to write pieces for the washington examiner or newsmax well their main you know function of business is to produce journalism um, articles, I would have to be a full-time employee to work for them. Yeah, and remind me again, you mentioned it earlier, who was the, um, was it Fox was the one that got hit by the gig killer bill in, uh, yeah, in California? In California. Mm -hmm. And that was so funny to me when it happened because all these, all these writers were writing in support of the bill. And then, I mean, Fox was writing articles in support of the bill and then people didn't read the bill. And it was something like, um, I, I'll get the number wrong, but I remember this lady uh, writing an article on it and she goes, now what I'm seeing is I'm only allowed to write 52 articles <laughs> a year or something. Yeah, you know, one basically, yeah. Yeah, and if I, if I write more than 52 articles a year, I'm gonna get fired. But if I only write 52 articles a year, I'm gonna make $6,000 this year. You know, and it's like, it's like, you know, you make a hundred bucks an article and, and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and you're not allowed to make more than that. Uh, otherwise you are going to get fired because they can't afford to pay you 40 grand to bring you on. Right. And I don't, I don't know that the average American understands um, why this is a big deal for companies, you know, hiring a full-time employee is really expensive because not only are they having to pay you whatever your salary is. They're also having to pay your benefits. They're also having to pay a payroll tax on you. They're having to pay, you know, all these things behind the scenes. Like I know um, in my last role, they actually gave it to me broken out. And on top of my salary, they were paying like 
almost 20 grand more a year on me to employ me as a full-time employee um, because of all these things they have to pay behind the scenes. So if you have a full-time employee, it is quite costly for a business versus if you have an independent contractor, um, you can pay them, you know, in a multitude of ways, but you're just paying them the actual cost of their labor, right? They're not paying any taxes on you, any benefits on you, any liability on you. They're not having to do any of that. What that actually means for many independent contractors is you get more money, you get more take home pay because the company isn't having to pay all this other stuff on you. You can demand higher rates for your contracting work oftentimes than you could for a salaried type position. So it's very beneficial to workers. It's very beneficial to companies who get products and, and goods and services for um, a better deal than they would get hiring full-time employees a lot of the time. So um, again, it's a win-win for people on both sides of the equation in the contract. It's not a win-win for the middleman who wants to come in and get a piece of the pie. Yeah, and I can tell you as an employer um, who employs both um, well-paid folks and not well-paid folks, that it is actually much, much more expensive to employ lower paid folks um, as a full-time person because you are giving them 401k, you're paying their health care. So I mean, their health care costs the same as your as your higher end folks. It's just a much higher percentage. On the low end folks, it's you know 25 to 30% of their uh, above and beyond their salary is what it ends up being. And what it makes you do is you you hire less of them. Right. Yep. So and then that's just what happens. You find ways to do with less. Um, and and if you can't use a contractor, then then sometimes you know jobs get combined and people end up doing more. And maybe that person gets paid five grand more, and I get rid of a twenty grand employee. And those are the kinds yeah. of decisions they get made. You know what I mean? So um, so anyway, yeah, I think uh, this has been a good discussion on the Pro Act. I think it's something we have to watch. What's the timeline on the bill? Do you know? I don't know. Again, it's it's sort of stagnated for the time being um, because again, they don't they don't have the votes in the Senate as best as I know at this moment. So, um, but it's it's in the category of issues that they want to pass, and the reason they're considering trying to get rid of the filibuster. Um, there's a number of things they want to try to to push through while they have control, and so it is a lot's writing on this filibuster. Um, and what they end up doing around that. So it remains to be seen. I think if they are to attack it, you, you could see some of these things steamrolled and pushed through quite quickly. Um, we're, we're kind of all just waiting to see what their move is on that. Sure. Um, so that, that concludes the uh, money portion of the segment. Now we're gonna talk about the criminal justice portion of the segment, obviously. Um, the Chauvin and George Floyd case has been in the news a ton. Um, what are your first impressions on how the trial went? Uh, what you think about the verdict and about the reaction since the verdict? Yeah, um, I think the the trial seemed to go pretty smoothly. Um, you know, I wasn't in the courtroom and I, I really wasn't able to spend most of my time watching what we could see publicly, but I tried to keep up with it in the evenings. Um, I thought that you know, it, it seemed that the, the prosecution actually did their job, which is somebody who's worked around a lot of criminal justice issues and the system for some time. You know, we very rarely see cops 
who have faced charges get to this point of even going to trial. It is, it's very rare. And the reason it's very rare is because oftentimes um, the system works to get these things thrown out. You know, they either overcharge them. You see the prosecutor often like not take a very aggressive stance in trying to prove their case. Um, and so there's, there's a lot that can go on. I thought the prosecution seemed to be doing their due diligence, which was nice to see. Um, and I, I really didn't think the defense had much of a leg to stand on. You know, they, they tried a couple pretty desperate attempts and didn't work. Um, but getting that verdict was still shocking, to be honest. I think, I think coming from where I sit, from my experience with the system, you just sort of anticipate to see these kind of people get off because we know that the system operates differently for people from different backgrounds and with different situations. And it, um, you know, that's been the, the, way it has typically run for many, many decades. And so to see guilty on all counts, I think my dominant emotion was relief, um, surprise, and uh, uh, slightly optimistic, like maybe this is a sign of, of things that are changing, but also um, weighted, you know, still a very heavy feeling. I think when I saw people celebrating, it surprised me. This, I thought there was no cause for celebration. You know, a man was dead. I think faith in our system is gutted. I think um, we're at a precarious point where if we don't pass significant reforms on our justice system, we really could be facing tremendous social upheaval. Um, and I think it's important that you know people do have faith and trust in our public systems, that they believe in a sense of justice, that they believe that there is equality before the law, that they believe there is accountability, because if they don't believe in those things, I do think you'll see people begin to turn to um, taking things into their own hands. And, and so I, um, I think there's a lot of work to be done. And, you know, I don't think this was justice. I think it was accountability for the police officer, which was needed. It was a needed step. But justice looks like ensuring this doesn't happen again. And there have been no, nothing, there's been nothing done um, to that end. Uh, you know, that looks like some very big, serious reforms to our justice system. But it also looks like understanding the root cause of problems in our justice system, which is that our government's too big and there are too many laws and there are too many instances where we've given police the authority to use force against American citizens. And unfortunately, that's not an awakening I've seen happening among people on the left. Um, and so I think that while we do see some um, very well-funded movements popping up uh, to respond to issues of police brutality and issues within our criminal justice system. I, I think a lot of them are still missing the mark on where their focal points should be and on what we should be trying to do to ensure that we don't have people being killed by the state and where we don't have people who have to fear police in this country. Um, so I think there's a long way to go. As a whole, it's been a very sad year for America and um, and I still feel sad about it. You know, I think it's it's a welcome relief that there was that small piece of accountability, but but yeah. this isn't any any excuse for us to stop. Yeah, I mean, I think what what made me happy was uh, the prosecution laid out a great what I think was a pretty solid great case. Um, the jury was a very mixed jury. They came back very fast. Um, they had seen what they needed to see, you know what I mean, and, and came to conclusion. I was shocked uh, that they got second degree murder. I was shocked at that, actually. Um, so I, I honestly don't know if I would have convicted on second, um, but, but third for sure. Um, 
And but I was shocked that he actually got anything at all. I was bracing myself and my family for um, for nothing or uh, or a hung jury because of some of the nonsense that went on a couple of days earlier. Um, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Is there is there going to be any issue with the water statement, or is, is appeal pretty much dead on this thing? You know, again, it's it's. It's always hard to predict. I do think cops get treated differently in our system than rank and file members of the American public. Um, so I, I truly cannot tell you what will happen on appeals. I will tell you that um, getting a case thrown out on appeals is typically very hard. You know, we have cases on death row where you have evidence of innocence, DNA evidence, other people coming forward and confessing, and you still can't get these cases thrown out. So um, you know, if you're if we're talking about a normal case, it would be very hard for it to be thrown out on appeal um, because we're not talking about a normal case. I don't really want to make any predictions. It's hard to say. I don't believe um, the, you know, conservative far right conservative statements alleging that um, there's that any of the statements made publicly by, you know, Joe Biden or others would in any way. Yeah. result in this getting thrown out like yeah. um, the jury because was sequestered. It has to be procedural, right? It's mostly procedural issues. The jury was sequestered. Um, people have free speech, you know, even as public officials, they have the ability to to weigh in on things. Um, so I don't I don't really think that has much bearing. I think it's a pretty long shot um, stretch for people. Yeah. Yeah, I think you can weigh whether or not you think it's appropriate that they that they made say statements or whether you think that that's something they should do in that role. But as far as its actual legal bearing, I don't see any yeah. chance for that. Yeah, and I think that was where my head was when it all went down. I said that she should be held accountable. Uh, that doesn't mean arrested. You know what I mean? Like, she should be voted out. She should be taken off of committees. She should be, you know, not doing what she's doing and, and rewarded for it. Um, and I believe, I may be wrong, I believe she made those comments prior to um, the jury being sequestered. Biden waited until they were se sequestered. Um, the jury would have still, no matter what, throughout the whole process, yeah. not had access to social media or mainstream media. I mean, when you're in a, in anytime yeah. you're on a jury in a case, um, you don't have access to the outside world, essentially. And so now, now, just so I'm clear, because I get the, the legal side of that. Um, but they were going home every night, were they not? I, I would have to check. Night. Usually you would not yeah. be. In this I thought that they were. Uh, I may be wrong. I thought that this jury was going home every night and then, then they I'd were. I'd be really during. surprised, given yeah. the, especially given just the um, notoriety of this case, if they were. Yeah. There, there would be, you know, personal uh, security issues with yeah, that. It could so be, I'll, I could be wrong on that. So I'll, I'll back off of that, but it was my understanding that they got sequestered, um, uh, during the jury, um, discussions. And that's why Biden finally talked, but I might be wrong on that. Um, but anyway, I haven't researched it to be honest. So I, I don't want to say for sure, yeah. this is what happened, but, but standard procedure yeah. would, would certainly not have them out about like that. I, I was pleased with just the general reaction um, where, uh, as far as I could tell, there wasn't a whole lot of rioting or looting or anything afterwards. I mean, I, it feels like um, people accepted the verdict and understood, you know, that uh, that this was a positive thing, even though it can't take back anything. Um, I was very disappointed that within 24 hours, we had two additional shootings of young Black people uh, by the cops. Now, the, the positive 
positive if there could be any um, is that those didn't instantly cause riots. Um, and I would say the positive is that both of those, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the two that I'm talking about, but um, both of those incidents, uh, the body cam evidence was released almost immediately, mm -hmm. which is something that we, um, in my opinion, we need to get better at because it stops two things. It stops the public from getting all amped up and wondering what it is um, that's going to be on there and causing riots or doing riots prior to knowing the facts. But it also stops the cops from lying uh, and the prosecutors from lying, which we saw in both the Adam Toledo case, uh, where the prosecutor lied about whether or not he had the gun when he got shot. And then we also saw in a uh, second case last week that I'm blanking on right now. Um, but anyway, it, it stops the um, uh, it stops the cops and the prosecutors from making false statements in court, you know, prior to a time when everyone can see that it's false. Um, what were your thoughts when you saw those two additional incidents and and how the public reacted? Yeah, I mean, it's. I feel quite jaded in some ways, just because I have worked so intensely on criminal justice reform for so long. You know, um, I often see people talk about like, well, the media is just elevating these cases. And it's like, well, those cases got elevated because somebody had video of it. You know, honestly, like these things happen all the time. It is so frequent. I think the New York Times reported that like since March 29th or so, there's been three police killings a day. Um, that tracks with the averages that I'm most familiar with, which I think is something over a thousand Americans killed per year by police. So um, I'm, you know, I'm glad that the average American is starting to encounter this and see it because it is nonstop. Um, it is an ongoing pressing issue and it is not, you know, an outlier, which many people want to make it out to be. Um, as somebody who didn't grow up around the justice system, you know, I'm white, middle-class, um, and, and, you know, just come from neighborhoods where it's not been an issue. Um, I had no idea that the justice system operated in the ways that it does until I got involved with mental health issues. Um, I think it's a good thing that Americans are more exposed to this because it, it just gets worse as you find out more. It keeps spreading. You know, the issues are so prolific within the system. Um, and until Americans really get a full picture of it, I don't know that they will rise up and push for the level of reform that we need. Um, so the, the incidents that have risen to prominence in the past couple of days are awful to watch. It's always awful to watch these videos. Um, I don't think we were meant to watch people die over and over again. Um, I try not to weigh in on cases until I have full information. Um, the young gentleman who was killed, Dante, I feel like I have a little bit more information on that one than the one that really started um, coming up yesterday with the young girl in foster care. But um, as a whole, I think it seems that uh, Dante's killing to me was quite unjustified. I think it's absurd that police can't tell their taser from their gun. I think there's no excuse for that. Um, we know he was pulled over for, you know, a rank and file kind of thing. He had expired tags. There were rumors that it was over his air freshener in his window. Um, and then it unfortunately escalated from there. Now, whether or not he had other offenses, whether or not he even knew that he had other offenses outstanding against him, which, you know, if you're not around the justice system, you're probably unaware of just how inept they are at even getting basic communications to people. There are a lot of people who have warrants out for their arrest who have zero clue of it. Um, so I, I, 
we're still waiting for all of those kinds of details to come out. But regardless, it does not seem in any way there was an excuse for escalating to a man's death. They need to have better de-escalation tactics. They need to be better trained. Um, and again, they need to be held liable when they do things like this. Until you have that component, nothing changes, right? There's no actual repercussions for them. There's no accountability. They have been placed above the law by a made-up Supreme Court doctrine from the 1960s called qualified immunity. And until it goes, nothing gets better. That is the underlying root cause of so many problems in policing. We didn't used to have these problems with policing 30, 40, 50 years ago. This is a new thing that started happening with the militarization of police, the 1970s, the drug war, and, and giving them a carte blanche pass to go out and operate in a way that is in no way respectful of our rights or our laws. Um, so that's first and foremost. Yesterday's incident, well, I don't know if it happened yesterday, but the, the video of the young woman being shot by police um, as best I can tell now seems to be a more fair, just intervention. Um, yet again, though, you know, I think that ultimately we should be able to take down a young woman with a knife without killing her. Like that would be a good use of a taser, right? Like, I don't know why we don't have these kinds of training and de-escalation techniques and why with all their military weapons, they can't do those sorts of things. That just doesn't seem like a valid excuse to me. Um, but I'm not going to judge a cop who's a, you know, probably a product of a very bad system that he's trying to operate within. It did seem like there was a real threat to another life and a need for intervention. Um, it's, it's unfortunate. And I think as a whole, from what we do know about this young girl, she also seems to be a product of failed big government policies uh, that placed her in foster care, likely had, you know, significant trauma issues from that, which we know is a root cause of ultimate violence down the road. Um, and so, you know, when these things happen, we need to be saying what's going wrong in our system where we could be intervening to ensure violence doesn't occur in the first place. And, and I think if we started tracing back those steps in this young woman's life, it seems like a lot of it would lead to very bad big government policies and interventions and ideas that could be stopped and, and dealt with in other ways. Um, so it, it's a very tragic circumstance. Um, and it's, you know, it's a hard uh, messy, nuanced situation, but I think it's wise for us to wait for all information to come out before we jump on. And, and you know, I do. Once once we have information, I jump on and I and I weigh in. But I think we're still we're still waiting for all those details in that case. So you were talking about um, <clears throat> Americans being more exposed to this type of thing, and I know that we just saw. I saw you posted about um, they ended qualified immunity somewhere in New York, and then they immediately sent out from their lawyers, hey, you should probably not be doing these types of things. And it looks like it, that's the type of reform that, that we would need. However, um, we're seeing, at least in like the more conservative states like Oklahoma, we just recently passed a bill um, that basically makes it illegal to record police officers in our state. And one of the most controversial statements that that I've made since being the chair was coming out in, in, in opposition to that. And then basically anything that is perceived as anti-police, we're seeing a huge pushback from that because we're seeing it go the opposite way. Are you seeing that where you're at? Are you seeing it in other states or is it mainly in the more conservative? And do you think that that will continue to be the pattern where we are gonna have more controlling states and the conservative end and then getting rid of qualified immunity and stuff in those more liberal blue states? Um, I mean, judging historically, I think it's always been the case. You know, we've always seen the deep red kind of like 
Southeast to Midwest Bible Belt kind of states have much more antiquated punitive approaches to criminal justice reform, much more big government approaches to criminal justice, um, and, and be play much more loose with civil rights and, and human rights um, in, in their states. So I'm not surprised to hear that that kind of, I guess I still am surprised that it's just breathtakingly stupid. <laughs> um, but I look forward to seeing that challenge in the courts. Um, but uh, I, I think as a whole, you know, we, this has been a pattern in these states and, and we see it correlate with higher rates of violent crime because these are really failed bad ideas that have proven to be failed and, and bad for decades. They've proven to be more expensive for decades. And so it's sort of this great irony that these places that claim to be about limited government, individual liberty and fiscal conservatism are actually the exact opposite of it. And, and their citizens bear the brunt. Um, whereas in other states, you know, they've gotten rid of some of these things like the death penalty and other really punitive approaches that have actually freed up millions of dollars that then can be redirected towards things that actually do work to produce safer communities or to solve more crimes. And so they see their crime rates getting better and they have um, safer, um, more whole communities and, and less of the social issues and ills that we see in some of these um, really impoverished places. So I, I, uh, I'm not surprised to see that trend continue in places like Oklahoma. Um, it doesn't seem that they've woken up in the past yet to, to these problems that are in the same vein. So, um, but I, I do think as a whole, the American public is in favor very much so of reform on both the right and left. Criminal justice reform is one of the most popular policies in this country. People get it. Um, I do think as we see more and more of these videos, no matter what side of the political aisle you're on, people are recognizing that policing is broken. Um, and even people who are very pro-police recognize that the way our system currently operates is bad for good police. It's harmful. Um, it protects bad apples. It often pushes the people you know, raising the alarm out. Um, I've worked with a lot of law enforcement or former members of law enforcement who have left over these issues, um, who were pushed out of their jobs because they were speaking up for some of the problems internally. So I, I think there is an awareness. I do think you're seeing um, the inevitable sort of like pushback by the far right, perhaps, but I think they're, they're dying in numbers on this issue and they know it, um, which is probably why you see some of the more uh, vocal people on it. I think when people know they're they're losing, they become kind of like backed into a corner and get a little louder. But as a whole, this is something that will will continue to proceed in this country. Um, and it's because all the data and arguments are on the side of reform. And I do think though, Kevin brings up a good point because not a lot of people uh, live in these flyover states, right? Not a lot of the big um, contributors that are out there talking live in these flyover states. And so people don't realize exactly what is happening, but in Oklahoma, we were being kind of celebrated as this big, you know, pro-freedom state last year when we did, you know, constitutional carry over the last 18 months. And we did, um, uh, we said we were gonna pass this bill where um, if the federal laws, if we don't think they're constitutional, we're not gonna enforce them, this and that. And then Kevin, correct me if I'm wrong, but over the last just six months, we've passed either passed or about to pass that bill where they can't record the police. Um, you're allowed to run over protesters if you're scared. Uh, and by the way, we're no longer gonna do that whole thing about not enforcing federal laws if they're unconstitutional. We're just gonna go ahead and enforce them. <laughs> that's like, that's what's happened over the last six months. Am I wrong on that, Kevin? 
Uh, so all of that has happened in addition to um, the single greatest bill in the history of our state. We now have a Bigfoot season. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so carry. For the constitutional carry. Uh, yeah. The reason I bring it up is just because um, I do think that this, like every other issue right now, is, is splitting the country in two, right? Um, but also... I think that one of the reasons these things passed, the, the videotaping and the running over protesters bill, uh, which I still can't believe happened, but, but the reason that these passed is because they're tying it to Black Lives Matter. Um, and everyone in Oklahoma hates Black Lives Matter and everyone in flyover states hates Black Lives Matter because they don't understand or whatever, whatever their reason is, they probably have decent reasons to find. Um, but my point with it is, is people like us and people like conservatives who actually understand that militarization of the police is a bad thing um, and that qualified immunity is a bad thing need to take the lead so that people like Oklahoma and Nebraska and North Dakota can see that, oh, okay, our folks are also against this. You know, we don't, we don't like it. You know, I'll be honest with you. After the Dante thing, I went out and got my tags, you know, renewed. Uh, they were three years old. I just don't <laughs> renew tags. So <laughs> I, I never have. I renew them when I get pulled over and then I, I go and get them renewed. You know what I mean? But I got them renewed after that because I got a big mouth and I don't feel like, you know, leaving my four kids without a, uh, without a dad. So, I mean, that kind of thing, you know, we need to fix this problem. We need to take action, but it's people like us that need to. Uh, show people like Oklahoma um, that it's not just a Black Lives Matter issue. This is actually something that everyone needs to pay attention to. I think that's right. And I think it has to be addressed from a, you know, truly um, principled libertarian conservative standpoint. And again, we're not asking people to violate their conscience. We're asking them to live up to it, right? You say you believe in these things and these values. Me too. Let's live up to it, right? You cannot be a fiscal conservative. You cannot be pro-limited government. You cannot be somebody who stands by individual liberty in the founding of our country and our documents that protect natural rights and stand by these things. You simply cannot. Um, I do think Black Lives Matter, the organization, has done tremendous damage to their own cause. You know, they've they've had a lot of hypocrites in their leadership. They've, you know, we've seen this kind of thing over and over and over. They get rich off it and they go and buy big houses. And um, I think that undermines the cause. I also think, um, you know, there have been um, people who've co-opted the protest. I think most people who went out to protest were, um, were not there who were violent or, or trying to harm private property. Um, but you had some bad actors who showed up and uh, they weren't prevented from doing this by police, it's worth noting, um, who did do significant damage to private property and to, to people's rights. Um, and so I, I never think protests go over well in general with the right. It's just not a mechanism that tends to resound. Um, and so I'm not surprised that there is the animosity as a whole towards Black Lives Matter, uh, the organization. But I, you know, what Black Lives Matter does or doesn't do is really immaterial to me. I have no involvement with them and, and I don't, I, they could go away tomorrow and I would still feel very strongly about these things and continue to advocate for them. 
Um, and so I think that that's where we have to approach it from. You know, we can agree Black Lives Matter as, as an org is problematic and is pretty communist and don't really want much to do with what's going on with them. But the issues that they're talking about do matter and they matter from our ideological standpoint. Yeah. So we have to advocate for them. And if, if we want our ideological standpoint to prevail, you know, the general public cares about these issues. And so we need to have free market, limited government solutions to them. And I promise you, if you leave it up to the other side to come up with the solutions to this, you're not going to like it. <laughs> yeah, and I agree. And I'm not, I'm definitely not advocating um, using Black Lives Matter to drive this. I'm more advocating separating the issue from Black Lives Matter because, because frankly, I can't, I can't imagine another scenario where a state would pass a law that says it's okay to run over a protester, right? Like the only That's reason that happened is because, um, because of the Tulsa protests and, and the way it all came out in that one damn truck, right, Kevin, that, that yeah. went in, into the crowd. And because of that one issue at that one protest, you know, they decided this was a good idea, even though conservatives protest probably more than Democrats in the state. <laughs> But but they put that in place, you know what I mean? Wow. Yeah, hundred percent. But it's it's also you know it's it's virtue signaling kind of in the reverse on the conservative yeah. end because I mean a lot of these bills like there's that one, uh, there's the the one where you can't record police, the doxing bill is what they're calling it, um, but it's not really a doxing bill. Right. It's just like you can't record police at all. Um, all of that stuff is just, it's virtue signaling to their base, you know, because these things will be challenged in court. Um, and, and it's just a waste of time and, and taxpayer money, but it, but it at least wins them points at the polls. Right. So I think that that's what we're seeing. But I think in general, what we're seeing is the, you know, like when we posted about those issues, we got a lot of hate. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that we're seeing the, we're seeing the a cultural shift at least in these flyover states that that's going the opposite way. And it, it's, yeah. I think it's a big deal that we all need to address and we just don't get the, the attention that, you know, the coasts get and things like that. So it, it's something that we really need to bring to the forefront with people <clears throat> and just make it known. Cause I don't think anybody, you know, nobody cares about a bill in Oklahoma. Like, I think that the resounding um, reaction that I've heard is everybody but MAGA and Fox News, you know, is happy about this, um, this verdict. And, and that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that people are actually taking action the other way, which is a really dangerous reaction. Um, and yeah. that's something that we need to get in front of. And I think the Libertarian Party, especially in these flyover states where we do a little better, um, can, can be actively fighting against that um, in, in different ways. So I hope we do. Absolutely. Yeah. And appreciate your all's advocacy. Well, this was awesome, Hannah. I think those are two fantastic issues. This could be a good, um, a good podcast episode. So we really appreciate you coming back on. This is only the second time you've come on, uh, out of several, several that we have planned. So thank you very much. <laughs> uh, you want to tell people where they can find you? Yeah, always good to be back. Um, they can find me on Twitter at Hannah Cox 7. Uh, on Facebook, my public profile is at Hannah Danielle Cox 7. Um, my show is called Based with Hannah Cox. It's on YouTube, it's on iTunes, on Spotify, and it's also on my Facebook. So I'd love for people to check that out. It comes out the last Monday of every month. So right around the corner. 
Um, and yeah, those are, those are great places to check me out. If you want to read my writing, fee.org is the official home. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We're looking forward to next time. Likewise. Yep. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Anna. Hold on my calls. He's a libertarian in chief. This is the libertarian chief chat. Just a libertarian chit chat with the chief. Oh, hey, I'm Kevin. I'm here too.